Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to our first Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy, investment banking correspondent at the Financial Times. Each week, we'll be bringing you the latest on what's been happening in the banking sector. I'm joined in the studio this week by Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent. Hello. And Brooke Masters, chief regulation correspondent. Hi. Over the past 77 days, we've seen sweeping regulatory changes across the sector, from a financial reform bill in the U.S. that could usher in the biggest banking overhaul since the 1930s, to the creation of a new commission in the U.K. to look at splitting up big banks like Barclays and Royal Bank of Scotland, to an unprecedented German ban on so-called naked shorting of Eurozone government bonds and credit default swaps. This week, we're going to talk about the possibility of a Europe-wide ban on speculative sovereign debt trading. But first, we're going to look at some of the key points coming out of the U.S. bill passed by the Senate last week and whether Britain's new coalition government between the Conservative and the Liberal Democrats is likely to bring forward similarly sweeping changes. Brooke, turning to you, what do you think some of those key points coming out of the bill passed last week are? The U.S. financial reform bill creates the first ever consumer protection agency that will look at mortgage and credit products on a federal level. It's a big change for consumers there because they will have someplace to turn when they feel they've been ripped off. The bill also requires most over-the-counter derivatives to be put onto exchange and put through central clearinghouses. This could be very good for the system's overall safety because it, it means that fewer unresolved trades will be left hanging if a big institution goes down. Opponents of the measure say it will add to costs and make it hard for banks to make money. There is, is within the derivatives section of the bill what is known as the controversial Blanche Lincoln Amendment, which would force banks to spin out their swaps desks. And Ms. Lincoln wants them completely removed from banks as a safety measure. But what's been the immediate reaction among both share price and sort of what are bankers saying on the street? It seems like there's less concern than there was initially about sort of a Glass-Steagall II type of, type of bill, less concern about maybe the big banks being broken up as was initially mooted. Can you just sort of talk us through that a little bit? I think most of the banks view this as much less bad than it could be. I mean, I think in the U.S. in particular, where so many banks had to get help from the federal government, there's a, a view that clearly regulation was coming. It could have been really horrible. You know, Paul Volcker wants to split proprietary trading and bank-owned hedge funds and private equity funds off from the banks. That is in the bill at this moment. But the way it is done, there's basically a two-year regulatory commission to study it. So there's either the possibility of watering it down or at least some effort to do it in a professional way that would be relatively easy to manage and not too confusing. I think in general, the reaction in the U.S. has been, this is not that bad. I saw one analyst estimate put out that said initially from Goldman Sachs that as banks could be hit, as much as 20 percent of their profits could be shaved off in the immediate aftermath while they sort of look to other channels. Does that estimate sound high to you? I think the 20 percent is primarily for the big investment banks mm. who draw a lot of their revenue and profits from derivatives, the vast majority of the banking system will not be hit as hard. And I think given that the major rebound has been in the investment banking sector, they probably can tolerate it. So just talk us through the timetable expected over the next 
few weeks. I think the goal is to get it signed by the end of June because the U.S. has a congressional election coming up in November, which means basically Washington shuts down by mid-July and everybody's out campaigning. So if it isn't done by the end of June, you've got a real problem. Now, of course, this isn't the only massive regulatory overhaul we've been seeing in in recent weeks and in recent months. Um, Obviously, Britain, which has ushered in a new government, the Khan Libden coalition have proposed their own reforms for the sector, admittedly much less detailed. And that's sort of what we've all been waiting to hear. Charlene, can you talk us through a little bit about what's been proposed by the coalition and how realistic some of these proposals are? Yeah, well, I think there's been a lot of talk about the government getting really tough on banks and people saying, you know, with Vince Cable coming in and he's been very vocal about wanting to break up the banks, as were the Tories at at one stage. But um, this doesn't seem to have that much momentum. The government has set up a commission um, which is going to go away for a year and investigate and they're going to report back to George Osborne um, sort of next spring. So we're we're not going to get any decisions anytime soon. I think the feeling is that an actual big-scale breakup of the banks is looking fairly unlikely. Uh, this would be an incredibly difficult thing to do, a very complex thing to do. They have said that they do want to introduce a banking levy. Uh, again, details are pretty scant on that, but it's unlikely they'll do that without consultation, at least with Europe and the US. So all a bit up in the air at the moment. Now, you and I know that when we were reporting this last week and there was the news broke that Vince Cable... Uh, one of the the chief sort of scourge of city fat cats and bankers and their bonuses uh, was going to be joining the cabinet. There was some immediate alarm in this city. Now that the details or sort of the lack of details uh, have emerged about the actual plan, I mean, what do you think explains this perceptible shift from the proposals that were being bandied about very much on the campaign trail from both the Lib Dems and from, from the Tory party? Who's really holding the reins right now on, on what reforms are coming? Actually, interestingly, we did see George Osborne step back from this on the campaign trail because, mm. you know, when, when it was just first beginning, he was saying some very strong words about, you know, we will break up the banks and we don't think that they should have their sort of more pedestrian retail operations in with their investment banking arms. And then we saw him very much soften his stance on that in the run-up to the election. Um, And one of the reasons for that, uh, which we pointed out at the time, was that actually the, the government still has enormous stakes in two of the biggest UK banks, Lloyds and RBS. And, you know, this kind of big investigation into them would really damage their ability to sell those stakes quickly and the Tories are fairly keen to get on with that sales process. So that's one of the reasons. Also, you know, having such a big government stake, they are unwilling to do anything that could sort of really bring down the profits of these banks because it's very much at the forefront of their mind that they want to recoup as, as much taxpayer money as they can. So that's another reason. And I think just, you know, the realism of what they're trying to do is hit a little bit and they've discovered that going ahead without agreements from Europe and the US would be a pretty risky thing to do. So I think they've stepped back from that on, on all accounts. Another thing that emerged that's been a bit murky since the coalition agreement came to the fore is what's going to happen to the final- Financial Services Authority. Obviously, this was, I would call it almost a surprise pledge uh, back during the campaign that the Tories would actually scrap the FSA and return macro, both macro and microprudential back to the Bank of England, as well as creating a new regulator to supervise uh, enforcement, white collar crime. Now, we've had some detail emerge that there will be some type of new body that will oversee what's called white collar crime, maybe taking in powers from the OFT, from the SFO, from the FSA. What's going on with the FSA right now? Where is that agency going to be? I think the FSA 
it turns out, has survived pretty much intact. Uh, the Bank of England will take on new macroprudential powers, which means that basically they will be looking for bubbles and trying to prick them and trying to bring them down before we get another crash. But the Bank of England apparently will not be getting involved in day-to-day supervision of banks or of anything else. So what that means is the FSA's supervisory arm, which is the biggest part of the uh, of the institution, will continue pretty much unchanged. On the enforcement side, it's very, very murky. They do seem to want to create some sort of super enforcer who will bring criminal cases against white-collar crime. However, it's a little unclear what that means, particularly for the FSA's insider dealing and market abuse function, because the FSA has always been the main enforcer of that and has only recently actually started to exercise its powers. It is unclear exactly where those powers will go, but what we're kind of hearing is, at least for now, it looks like insider dealing and market abuse will stay with the FSA, although accounting fraud boiler rooms, other kinds of corporate crime that are less clearly markets related will likely go to this new body. Now, you and I have had discussions about this as well, and Charlene, now, this category of so-called white-collar crime is definitely not what I think anyone would say is the UK uh, prosecutorial shining star moment. I mean, on the OFT side, with price fixing and corruption, we've seen a series of very high-profile failed cases. The one that springs to mind to most people is BAE and the sort of disastrous effects of of pursuing that case. Um, For the SFO, as everyone knows, a very mixed track record with the big sort of sprawling prosecutions with, you know, some high-profile successes, but just as many failures littering the road. And and with the FSA, as you've just said, I mean, they've now brought five criminal insider-dealing prosecutions. They've had one sort of semi-big hit with Malcolm Calvert, the retired Kazanov partner. But is this sort of what we would call a toxic bank type of institution for those cases that none of these organizations has yet been able to establish a really credible track record of success? I think it's possible that's what they're envisioning. My guess is they're really looking across the Atlantic at the Justice Department, which does all of that. The U.S. Justice Department obviously has been very strong and very powerful for a long time. And they are able to leverage success in price fixing with success in fighting overseas corruption, partially because all of those skills are somewhat related. They involve explaining complicated corporate crime to a jury and convincing companies that you are serious and they're going to have to pay a lot of money. It's not a terrible idea to bring it all together. It does work in the U.S. Whether it'll work here is not at all clear because the courts, particularly the judges and juries, have not been as supportive of you know really high penalties. The U.S. made sort of a mental jump in the 80s that corporate crime mattered and should be heavily punished. And the whole system is set up to make that possible. And that's not yet true here, and maybe it never will be. Charlene, from the perspective of the on the ground on the banks, in terms of keeping microprudential supervision with the FSA, I mean, is that going to address some of the systemic concerns? I mean, do you think this is the type of structure that would prevent, say, another Northern Rock from happening, another Bradford and Bingley, you know, two issues where the FSA has been heavily criticized and the tripartite system as a whole has been criticized? I mean... Well, I think it might help to sort of see where the crises are going to come. But of course, it's very difficult to sort of always look forward and, and and really identify where the problems are going to come from, particularly when, you know, things start recovering and we're back in a sort of boom period and everything seems to be going very well. It's then that you need to sort of spot where the bubbles are, are coming and, and really tame them, uh, which did not happen at all. And the FSA really has got to step up its game. Isn't this a problem with all the regulatory proposals in the sense that 
the sort of fundamental issues that led to the crisis aren't the ones that are actually being tackled now and that we have the sort of crackdown on bonuses, we have the crackdown, you know, splitting out swaps desk, you know, derivatives through clearings, but that if we look, if we step back and say, wait, none of these things that are being talked about whether it's Europe and a you know ban on naked shorting of CDS and sovereign debt, whether it's here and sort of cracking down on bonuses and and you know setting up a commission to split up the banks, um, or whether it's some of the proposals in the U.S. reform bill, that none of these are really addressing the fundamental cause of the financial crisis, which was too much leverage in the system. I think part of the reason we haven't seen it in the bills is everyone's waiting for the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which is the one body that, while it does not have legislative power is tasked to come up with global standards, particularly on capital and liquidity. And capital is, you know, how much equity and cash a bank is holding to cover its problems. And and liquidity is how much liquid assets it has, and so it can sell to, to deal with an immediate crisis. And also whether it is mismatching its reliance on short-term funding to cover long-term promises. And that's what went wrong with Northern Rock, fundamentally. I think it will be a big question when the Basel Committee meets this summer and again in November, whether they come forward with proposals that have teeth and whether the national regulators and, and national legislators come forward in various countries and enact them. If they do, then I think we do start to get at the things that caused the last financial crisis. And do you think the possibility of a European-wide ban on naked shorting is likely to take effect? I mean, Germany was sort of went out on a limb last week, heavily criticized in the city, heavily criticized by bankers. But we hear rumors is gaining traction for some type of proposal, perhaps even this week. I think it's a popular proposal. I mean, people always like to blame the short sellers for, for when there is a problem with a sovereign debt or with a company. But fundamentally, if you look at why Greek bonds sank, it's not because of shorting and it's not because of CDSs or naked CDSs. Greek bonds sank because people sold them. I think it will be really interesting to see because the French went absolutely nuts at the German proposal because they felt it had been done unilaterally. And while they ordinarily, I think, would support a ban on CDSs, it's not clear now that they're so mad what they will do, whether they will you know, instead make the Germans look like they're out on a limb and stupid by refusing to go along with a, a European-wide system. Naked CDSs are really hard to define. You know, the problem with it is you're not supposed to buy a credit default swap if you don't have something that you're protecting against. But what exactly counts? Like, mm -hmm. if you own a Greek bank, can you buy a swap on Greek bonds? Because they're all very closely related. And I think it's one of those things that once you open that can of worms and try to come up with a really good definition, it's going to take years to sort it out. Charlene? Also, I think... You know, just going back to what regulators can do to sort of stave off another financial crisis, banks are really, we are seeing a sort of them fighting this a little bit because they are very worried that too much regulation coming in now, just as the economy is beginning to recover, just as things are sort of getting back to normal, could really stifle that. And banks are very worried that, you know, bringing in capital requirements too fast, making them hold too much liquidity, both of those things could constrain their ability to lend and get the economy going again. So there's been some hesitation there about wanting to really just bring in very definitive new regulation across the board sort of quickly. All right. Well, guys, once again, all eyes are going to be on the market this week to see uh, if the Eurozone crisis deepens further and how financial stocks are going to react to some of these regulatory changes that we've been discussing today. Um, be sure to read the FT this week and on Saturday for Charlene's full coverage also of HSBC's annual general meeting on Friday. And all that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Brooke for joining me and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com 
forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.